Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? For those of you in the future, if there is a future, then just look up the week from about, say, the 8th of November 2016 up in Google and see what comes up. Yeah, it's been a lot, hasn't it? In fact, 2016 has been a lot. I hope then I can bring us all back to what is truly important. Not politics, or transportation accidents, or how good the crown on Netflix is. Nope, what's truly important is a whistle-stop tour of the attributes of England's medieval queens. Before I get going though, I have, as usual, some notices. First of all, joy of all joys, I have my laptop back. Huzzah and hurrah. I can't tell you how nice it is to have a machine that is no longer on life support, doesn't weigh as much as a small car, and perform like your granddad attempting to lift said car. Next, as usual, if you'd like to get the latest news about my podcasting life and this show, then you can find me at Queens of England Podcast on Facebook, at Queens Podcast on Twitter. There's also my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, and of course, my all-important Patreon page, where, should you be of noble heart and generous soul, you can throw some change my way. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash queensofenglandpodcast. All links, of course, are in the show notes. With that in mind, I would like to thank my latest donators, Kathy, Emma, and Maggie. I'm getting rather overwhelmed by everyone's generosity. It's amazing. Thank you all so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you enjoy podcasts. To all my new listeners, welcome. To my old ones, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 36, Season 1 Wrap-Up, The Medieval Queens. So, we made it! It's been such a long time since those heady days in May of 2015 when I first plugged in my trusty Samson mic loaded up Audacity, and recorded my first two episodes of this podcast. And then had to do it all over again, because Audacity likes to punish you like that. I released my first two episodes over one weekend. This momentous occasion was met by... Tumbleweeds. But no matter, that was what I expected. And so two weeks later, I released my first episode on a queen, Matilda of Flanders, wife of the bastard, Duchess of Normandy, which was met by... about three Tumbleweeds? Which was, you know... Better? And then I just kept plugging away. One episode every fortnight, and here we are today, nearly 18 months down the road, and wrapping up the medieval queens now with over 100,000 downloads. This was supposed to be where I ended the show, as I am, at heart, a medievalist. 
but I couldn't leave you all hanging like that, so we will be getting into Henry VIII and his six wives. Or was it four? Or maybe three? It actually depends on your definition. Well, anyway, I will be doing all six. But first, we shall close the first season on the Queens of England podcast by having a look over the 20, yes, 20 queens that I have covered and see how they stack up against each other. It goes without saying that in this episode, I'm going to be making massive generalisations in order to find trends. I hate the oversimplification of history as much as the next man, but I do think it's worth it when looking at such a broad swathe of history such as this, to try and look through the murky waters to try to find out if slash how slash why things change. This is no Whig history podcast. Things did not progress neatly from the dark days of the conquest through to a more enlightened time by the time we get to the Renaissance and Reformation. Indeed, I would argue the opposite. But there are trends and patterns that emerge when we look at all this data, and that is what this show is about. For those of you that listened to my episode on the Queens of Game of Thrones, I'm going to take a similar tack in this show, in that I will look at how everyone performed according to the four facets of queenship that I have identified throughout the series. These are 1. Children. How many did they produce? How many sons? 2. Advantage. What did they bring with them to the marriage? Money, influence, lands, claims, that sort of thing. 3. Piety. Were they known as being good Christian mothers and wives? Did they give generously to the church and give alms to the poor? Did they act in a moral way? And 4. Influence. What influence did they bring to bear? How did they run the court? Did they have political power in the kingdom? How do they use their position to accomplish their goals and satisfy their supporters? Okay, so before we start, let's go through all the 20 queens that we have seen so far to quickly remind you who they are. First, we have the Norman queens, the Matildas of Normandy and Scotland, Adeliza of Louvain, and then Matilda of Boulogne. Then we have the Angevins, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Berengaria of Navarre, and Isabel of Angoulême. And then into the Plantagenets, the Eleanors of Provence and Castile, Margaret and Isabella of France, Philippa of Hainaut, Anne of Bohemia, and Isabella of France. And then the Lancastrian queens, Joanna of Navarre, Catherine of France, and Margaret of Anjou, the Yorkists, Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Neville, and then of course finally the first Tudor queen, Elizabeth of York. If any of these names seem unfamiliar to you, then you should go back and listen to their episodes. For the rest of you, let's get going with judging these queens, and we will start with their children. Okay, like the good art student that I am, I attempted to examine who the most successful queen was using maths and graphs, which was, you know, harder than I remember. There are some graphs in the show notes that I spent a slightly embarrassing amount of time creating. For the number of children, I count as an adult any child that reached the age of 12. There are a few exceptions to this rule. For example, for Elizabeth Woodville, I counted her second son, Richard, as his death almost certainly had nothing to do with ill health and was instead likely murder. I also only counted children that the Queen had with the King, and so I could not count Joanna of Navarre's Breton kids as they weren't with Henry IV. So, using these parameters, we have two Queens that had nine children. Matilda of Flanders, wife of William the Conqueror, and Philippa of Hainaut, wife of Edward III. We then have Elizabeth Woodville, wife of Edward IV, on 8, and Eleanor of Aquitaine, wife of Henry II, on 7. Now, of course, while daughters were important, what kings really needed above all else were sons. So let's look how the queens measure up in terms of adult sons. Well, the names are quite similar. At the top, we have Philip Raveno, again, on 5. 
then Eleanor of Aquitaine and Matilda of Flanders on four, and then a whole bunch on two. At the other end of the scale, there are six queens in our period who did not produce children with kings. Adeliza of Louvain, second wife of Henry I, Berengaria of Navarre, wife of Richard the Lionheart, Anne of Bohemia and Isabel of France, both wives of Richard II, Joanna of Navarre, and Anne Neville, wife of Richard III. Now, of course, it would be grossly unjust of me to suggest that any of these women were at fault for the lack of childbearing. Indeed, there are a large number of extenuating circumstances. Berengaria of Navarre was really not around the lion hut for long enough to conceive a child. Isabella of France was too young, Joanna of Navarre probably too old, and the king already had enough sons. And Neville did have a son, but he died unexpectedly. Adeliza of Louvain is a bit of a mystery, as Henry I was desperate for sons, and she was fertile, shown by her having children with her second husband, but again, it's really not okay for us to blame them. That said, people at the time kind of did. While there was sympathy for queens if they were suitably pious if they struggled to produce children, it was seen as suspicious in the eyes of contemporaries. Fertility, like many things, was considered to be bestowed upon you by God as a reward for good behaviour. If you were barren, then maybe it was a sign of a lack of divine favour. So let's get back to the profligate queens. Now one could argue that when it came to children, more was always better. That was definitely a view that was held by many at the time. It showed that the couple was favoured by God. It shows us that they were regularly doing it, which possibly shows a degree of intimacy and love. However, from the distance of most of a millennium, we can see that there are big dangers to having too many kids. Well, not so much kids, but there was definitely a danger in having too many sons. Let's look again at those queens with more than two sons, because having more than an heir and a spare caused each of these queens, not to mention their sons, a ton of headaches. Going chronologically, we start with Matilda of Flanders. She had four adult sons, Robert, Richard, William and Henry. Now, Richard died in his late teens slash early twenties, so he isn't that important, but her three other sons warred like crazy. First of all, they fought over the succession, as their father was super unkeen to give it to his layabout eldest son. When the kingship of England was eventually bestowed upon William and the Duchy of Normandy to Robert, this led to war between the two as they both sought to unite the kingdom and the duchy. When William died and Henry seized the English throne, this then again led to war with Robert, and the cycle only ended with Robert imprisoned in a castle far, far away. This, though, was absolute domestic harmony when compared to the sons of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Bloody hell. So, to remind you, we had Henry the Young King, Richard the Lionheart, Geoffrey and John. These four fought between each other, allying with foreign powers against their father and mother, against their father with their mother, with each other, against everyone. You name it, they did it. Matilda's sons were fighting essentially over one prize. Eleanor's sons were fighting to be given the best pieces of the Angevin Empire. If they could not be king, then they had to be Duke of Aquitaine. If not that, then it had to be a bunch of other duchies to compensate, and so on. The problem simply put with having a lot of sons is that all these kings, with the exception of Henry VI, only had one crown. There was only one England. Therefore, you had to palm off all the other sons with positions powerful enough to keep them happy, but not so powerful that they became overmighty. Especially in the early part of our story, this was nigh on impossible if you had more than a couple of sons. Finally, there is Philippa. She has some very famous sons. Edward the Black Prince, Lionel Duke of Clarence, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, Edmund Duke of York, and Thomas Duke of Gloucester. 
Unlike with Matilda and Eleanor's sons, the problems here did not become apparent for a little while, but when they did, they caused more trouble than the other two combined. See, when you have four sons, all of whom have survived well into adulthood and had children of their own, this produces a lot of people who have claims to the throne. Now, claimants to the throne are always numerous, but these sons all married well, and sometimes their descendants married back into the bloodline, strengthening their claims. This meant that when kings got into trouble, there was always someone who could trace their ancestry back to a child of Philippa to claim the throne. This happened when Henry Bolingbroke, son of John of Gaunt, overthrew Richard II. When Richard, Duke of York, and his sons, Edward IV, challenged and overthrew Henry VI, as they were related to both Lionel and Edmund. And then finally with Henry Tudor, whose exceedingly dodgy claim dated back to John of Gaunt again. My point is that for stability's sake, I think that queens ought to stop at two and leave it there. Which means that seven of our queens hit perfection. Air and despair, that's all you need. Okay, moving on to advantage. Once again, let's look at the numbers. The great majority of our queens were from overseas, as you can see from my helpful pie chart. God, I love a good pie chart. A quick disclaimer, for the sake of bunching people together, I've taken their nationality as being that of their biggest overlord. For the benefit of those who are driving, we can see from this chart that 50% of our queens were French, 20% were British, and 15% each were Spanish or from the Holy Roman Empire. Looking at it another way, 80% of England's post-conquest medieval queens were foreign, and it wasn't until the late 15th century before we got more than one. The reasons for this are fairly obvious. A queen from a foreign power meant foreign alliances and or peace abroad, and also meant the reflected glory of the foreign house would increase your own prestige and slash or wealth, thanks to a healthy dowry. Barring domestically could end civil strife, but it also created jealousy. Raising up another noblewoman to queen meant that their family suddenly became top and this was not a recipe for domestic harmony. The British queens were Matilda of Scotland, Elizabeth Woodville, Anne Neville, and Elizabeth of York. Now, interestingly, the only one out of that bunch who received a lot of backlash from being homegrown was Elizabeth Woodville, and that had as much to do with her being low-born as anything else. This meant the promotion of her relatives and, well, everything that happened. Anne Neville was married before Richard became king, and before, really, there was much of a chance that he would become so. She was married essentially because of her wealth. For Matilda of Scotland and Elizabeth of York, it was their very homegrownness that really was the point. Matilda was half Anglo-Saxon English and was married to Henry I because he wanted to ingratiate himself with his Anglo-Saxon subjects and provide a contrast with his unpopular Norman brothers, William Rufus and Robert Curthose. There was a little bit of snobbery here, though, with people calling her Godiva, mocking her English heritage. Elizabeth, of course, was married to cement the peace between warring houses, in many ways a symbol of how far England's stock had fallen. She used to fight great kingdoms like France, now she fought against herself. Moving further afield, let's look at those 80%, the foreign queens. As I said earlier, 50% of our queens were French, though it's also fair to say that not all of them were allied to the French king. Of the ten French queens, four came from the royal family. These were Margaret, second wife of Edward I, Isabella, wife of Edward II, Isabel, second wife of Richard II, and Catherine, wife of Henry V. Of the rest of them, some were more tangentially related to the royal family, such as Margaret of Anjou, who was related to the French king's wife. 
and others were hostile, such as Eleanor of Aquitaine, who divorced a French king and moved about one-third of France over to England to form the Angevin Empire. Those caveats notwithstanding, it's not at all surprising that England would see so many French marriages in this period. France and its various warring duchies were England's closest neighbours, and let's not forget that the English royal family was French-ish. It was not really until you get to Henry III and the Edwards that you really get a proper expression of Englishness from the kings of England. This did not mean that they considered themselves fully French, but they weren't the same as their subjects either. Okay, I think you get the picture on nationality. Let's move on to a broader discussion of the motivations behind the decision to marry each of these women. Now, I tried to make some sort of a chart for primary reason behind marriage, but that got hideously complicated, so I bravely gave up. But it is worth thinking about this. The position of King of England in terms of the hierarchy of European royal houses was not constant through the period. If we discount queens married before their husband were even heirs to a throne, people like Matilda of Flanders, Matilda of Boulogne and Anne Neville, we can definitely see the changing nature of English status through the later Middle Ages. Eleanor of Aquitaine was the first big status wife, in terms of her being an heiress with tons of land, as well as a former queen of the French. The first daughter of a foreign king to be married to an English king in post-conquest England was Berengaria of Navarre, a fairly minor kingdom, but still nothing to be sniffed at. Another step up came with Eleanor of Castile, wife of Edward I, and then after that, it became more common with all of those French queens I talked about before. England, from about the 1300s through to the end of the Hundred Years' War and the Wars of the Roses, were no longer making do with mere daughters of dukes for the most part. They had far nobler blood in mind. Of course, we get to the point at some periods in our story when England could claim to be at the top of the European dynastic food chain and could demand exactly the bride that she wanted. The best example of this is Catherine of France with her marriage to Henry V. I called her in the episode the Trophy Queen because she was essentially won on the battlefields of Agincourt and beyond, and essentially amounted to a surrender by a failing French dynasty. From these high watermarks, we also have our lows. See Margaret of Anjou, for example. She may have been tangentially related to the French Queen, but her choice was forced by English defeat in the field. Then there was Eleanor of Provence, who despite being just the daughter of a count, came with no dowry and not all that great status. Moving on from the notion of marrying for status, what about marriages for war and peace? Again, we have a lot of marriages that were mostly for this reason. In terms of marrying for peace, Elizabeth of York is a prime example, as her marriage is about binding together Lancaster and York through marriage. Her noble status, in fact, was in many ways actually a disadvantage, as Henry VII sought to downplay her claims to the throne. We just talked about Catherine of France, but of course that marriage was intended as a peace between England and France, albeit firmly on English terms, as was the inverse marriage of Margaret of Anjou, a marriage for peace largely on French terms. Edward I's marriage to Margaret of France had a couple of reasons, but one of them was about securing a peace with France so that he could go off and become the Hammer of the Scots. Philip of Hainaut's marriage to Edward III, while he was Prince of Wales, was firmly an alliance marriage giving Isabella and Mortimer the naval and military support needed to invade England and topple Edward II. Similarly, the marriages of Spanish princesses such as Berengar of Navarre and Eleanor of Castile were largely motivated by English kings wishing to secure the southern flank of their French empire, 
to protect the provinces of Aquitaine and Gascony from facing a two-pronged attack from both sides of the Pyrenees. In terms of marriages for financial or territorial gain, these are not as common as a primary motivation. Again, the best example of this is Eleanor of Aquitaine, who brought with her one-third of... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. France. One could argue that Edward II's marriage to Isabella of France was about this as well. But in a future sense, marrying her gave their children a strong claim to the French throne, and it was through this marriage that we got the dynastic justification for the Hundred Years' War. Anne Neville can also sort of be counted in this, although the marriage took place before Richard was close to the throne. Marrying Anne gave Richard access to a ton of land, which meant that he had a considerably higher noble status. I don't believe that he would have had the power to make a claim for the throne if it were not for this marriage. There were also marriages driven primarily by the need for children. Now, of course, this can seem, on the face of it, a ridiculous thing to say. Surely all of these marriages were motivated in part by the desire to have kids. Surely that was the primary reason for marrying in the first place. Well, yes, that is to an extent true, but A, not all marriages in this period were driven by the need to have kids. Henry IV's match with Joanna of Navarre is a great example of this. They both had plenty and had no need to have more. And B, some marriages were more motivated by this than others. I'm mainly talking about second marriages here. Kings who found that, after the death of their first wives, that the succession was not yet secure, as they had either no son or only one. Into this bracket fits very neatly Adeliza of Louvain, a young bride for Henry I still grieving for the loss of his one and only son. It was also the other reason for Edward I's marriage to Margaret of France, as he felt that he needed a spare in case his one son, the future Edward II, died prematurely. Kings wished to avoid the nightmare of civil war that an uncertain succession could bring, and so it is not altogether surprising that this would be a strong motivation in certain cases. Finally in this section, we need to look at marriages not driven at all by advantage. Some kings had no real good reason for marrying the women they did, but they did it anyway. Elizabeth Woodville, again, is the most famous example here, as Edward spurned any number of more dynastically appealing high-status wives to marry this commoner that nobody has ever heard of. Joanna of Navarre is another example. Henry IV had kids enough and had no real need for a Breton or Navarrese alliance. He could probably have done with marrying someone, but Joanna would not have been high on anyone's dispassionate list of suitable women. The two had a connection, and so they wed. 
Okay, if you're still with me after that long section on advantage, we move on to the sexy world of piety. It's one of those great paradoxes in medieval life that queens were supposed to have children, but also appear almost horrified by the immorality of sex. It was supposed to be for procreation and nothing more in the eyes of the church. In practice, of course things were not that simple, but people did expect queens to be incredibly moral in their own lives, a high standard that was not always kept to by the great majority of the men at court. To paraphrase Julius Caesar, the king's wife must be above reproach. There could be no hint that they were not devoted to their husbands, to their new home, and to their children. Private devotion was not enough. They had to be seen to be devout. They had to give to religious houses, sponsor religious texts, and visit shrines. The most pious queen of them all in our period was Matilda of Scotland. Her mother, St Margaret, while not yet a saint during her reign, was always likely to become one, and was reputed to be the woman that fully Christianised the Scottish royal family. Matilda's husband, Henry I, was one of history's great womanizers, holding the record for most illegitimate children of any English monarch. But she won a deserved reputation for being an incredibly pious queen. The most famous example of this is the occasion that she was discovered by her brother David washing the feet of lepers. He admonished her, saying, quote, My lady, what are you doing? Surely if the king knew about this, he would never deign to kiss you with his lips after you had been polluted by the putrefied feet of lepers. And then she, under a smile, said, Who does not know that the feet of the eternal king are to be preferred over the lips of a king who is going to die? You can't say fairer than that. Matilda set a fairly high bar here, but for the most part, English medieval queens did a good job of keeping the church on their side. Eleanor of Castile was one of the great patrons of religious orders and sponsors of medieval writing. The Dominicans in particular were a favourite of hers, and she ran one of England's only royal scriptoria, churning out religious books for herself and the court. Philip of Hainaut started the tradition of Queen's founding Oxbridge Colleges, and while that might not seem like an act of piety today, let's not forget that these were, to a great degree, religious foundations. Theology was one of the most important subjects taught at Oxford and Cambridge, and educated much of the upper clergy of the kingdom. She patronised the Queen's College Oxford, which was later founded in her name, and later, Marc de Vanjou would found Queen's College Cambridge, which would then be refounded by Elizabeth Woodville. Of course, in the middle part of our story, the ultimate expression of religiosity was to go on crusade. Three of our queens went on these trips with mixed success in terms of its impact on their moral perception. Eleanor of Aquitaine went with her first husband, the King of France, but that all ended in suspicions of her banging her uncle. Berengari of Navarre accompanied Richard the Lionheart, but like most things in Berengaria's life, no one really took any notice. Eleanor of Castile, however, did come out of crusade very well, most especially for taking care of her husband after an assassination attempt. Some queens, however, did fall foul of the church and not be the pious little angels that they were expected to be. No one did this quite as well as Isabella of France. You don't get much more immoral than a rebellion against your husband and then fragrantly parading your lover around court. Both Joanna of Navarre and Elizabeth Woodville faced charges of witchcraft, though that really had more to do with political machinations at court than any conduct on their part. Isabella of Angoulême had a reputation of being a sex-crazed maniac along with her husband John, forcing him to stay away from state affairs and spend all of his time in bed with her, but again, that really had more to do with her husband's weakness and unpopularity than her own conduct. But that did not really matter. Perception was everything 
and the Queen had to be whiter than white. Lastly, we're going to talk about influence. Now, a bit like how I interpreted advantage, I'm going to look at influence pretty broadly. So let's first look at their influence at running the court. This one is a little tricky to quantify, as it's not really something that chroniclers, especially in the early part of our story, really talked about. It was a very mundane, day-to-day sort of thing that only aroused comment if the Queen mixed things up or didn't do her job properly. There are quite a few things at play here. First is that the Queen had to be the convivial hostess, both for English courtiers but also for foreign visitors. This meant that she had to be familiar with a lot of the nitty-gritty details of courtly finances and had to be involved closely in the exact planning of a diplomatic visit. It goes without saying that she had to look the part. Queens had to be good-looking, stunningly dressed and have impeccable manners. Second is that the Queen had to make sure that the court remained culturally relevant. Courts had to employ the latest fashions, the latest music and the latest literature. Had to not devolve into a sausage fest, but also not fall into debauchery. It had to be sophisticated, but not boring. Oh, and it couldn't cost too much to run. So, no pressure then. Matilda of Scotland's court was notable, because it followed the queenless sausage fest of chaos that was the court of William Rufus. Chronicles talk of the devastation around the land that a royal visit could cause, and Matilda, being the refined lady that she was, changed all of that. She, of course, added a more demure religious flavour, but was a great patron of literature too. Elizabeth Woodville, if you remember from episode 31, had a great long section in one chronicle dedicated to how she orchestrated the visit of an ally and friend, Louis of Griffiths, which was highly complimentary. And let's not forget the number of queens who are great patrons of literature, not just religious, but also secular. But you're not here for that kind of influence. You're here for me to talk about the queens that did something a little more tangible. Queens who had real political power. I'm going to separate this out a little bit into four different kinds of power. One, vice-regal power. Two, military power. Three, personal power. And four, soft power. Vice-regal power is really a term that historians of Anglo-Norman England use, and since that is my background, I'm going to drag it kicking and screaming into the later Middle Ages as well. What it essentially means is power to rule the kingdom given to an individual by the king when he is not around. Normally, this is because he was somewhere else, either quelling a revolt in another province of his, or abroad fighting a war. But I will also extend it to include when the king was either too incapacitated to rule, too captured to rule, or too dead to rule. This was the most acceptable way for a king to exercise real, tangible political authority. When a king had to leave the wheels of government in the hands of another, it had to be someone whom he could trust implicitly, not to simply seize the crown while his back was turned. Sometimes it was a trusted advisor, sometimes it was a brother or a son, but often it was his wife, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. As a woman, she was considered no real threat to his rule. She could not lead troops on the battlefield, she could not raise armies or rule alone. If the king could trust her pretty little head to be able to deal with all the minutiae of keeping everything ticking over, then she was the perfect candidate. This happened most often when the realm spread across both sides of the English Channel. All three Matildas exercised power in this way. Matilda of Flanders ruled in Normandy while William the Conqueror secured his conquest of England. Matilda of Scotland did the reverse for Henry I. Matilda of Boulogne helped take care of the more civilian matters of government during the anarchy, while King Stephen did battle with the Empress and her generals. Eleanor of Aquitaine also did this, 
controlling her own duchy of Aquitaine in the early years of her reign as queen, and ruled the whole kingdom during the reign of her son Richard when he was away on crusade. And Philip of Hainaut ruled England, while her husband Edward III fought the French in the Hundred Years' War. Queens that ruled while their husband was incapacitated were somewhat more controversial. In the case of Isabella of France, it was she who had incapacitated her husband, first by imprisoning him, and later by having him murdered. Probably. I'll come back to her, as technically she ruled in the name of her son, and so I will move on to Margaret of Anjou. Now, strictly speaking, she had no mandate to exercise vice-regal power, as the king left no instruction on what to do if he went mad. I mean, who would? The nobility put their trust in the Duke of York, but Margaret made it her responsibility, and it was this tension between York and Margaret that did a lot of damage in the lead-up to the Wars of the Roses. Finally, we move on to queens who ruled on behalf of their underage sons, which actually wasn't all that common in this period, as we have relatively few boy kings. Indeed, there really was only one, Isabella of France, and her rule was deeply unpopular, and was eventually ended with her own son leading a coup against her and executing her lover Mortimer. For the other boy kings, Henry III, Richard II, Henry VI and Edward V, their mothers were either dead or sidelined. So in terms of vice-regal power, it was fine to do so if specifically appointed to the position by the king. If not, well then it was somewhat more dodge. Queens who exercise military power are extremely rare. Queens, to be Captain Obvious, were women. They could not lead troops into battle. But of course, leadership in the field was not the only important part of being a military leader. A US Marine general who led troops in Vietnam once said that, quote, Amateurs think of tactics professionals think about logistics. Queens could be that logistical mind, giving her troops every possible advantage before sending them into battle. Now, of course, this was not their natural domain at this time, and so this only happened when the king was not around. Matilda of Boulogne, for example, did this when King Stephen was imprisoned by the Empress, leading her own troops from Boulogne in the Siege of Dover. Philip of Hainaut, while ruling as regent of England while Edward III was in France, had to arrange defence of northern England against a Scottish invasion, and reportedly made an impassioned speech to her troops on the eve of their great victory at Neville's Cross. Eleanor of Aquitaine also did this during the reigns of her sons, raising up armies to defend England's French territories against the resurgent King of the French. Personal power I will only briefly touch on, as it has already come up, but queens were often rulers in their own right, being the inheritors of duchies and counties on the continent. Indeed, that is often what recommended them as queen. Now, their new husbands ruled them in their stead, using the convention of Inuri Exuris, but that did not render them powerless in their homeland. In other cases, they had built up their own land holdings within the kingdom, and built up financial influence that way. Indeed, that is often what recommended them as queen. I've already talked a lot about Eleanor of Aquitaine, but then I love talking about her, so I will continue. She was the most powerful woman who would ever become Queen of England in terms of territory, as she was the regnant Duchess of Aquitaine. This meant that she had a tremendous base of support to draw on, which meant that during the reign of her husband and her children, she could usually rely on her countrymen to rally to her cause. Again, this was the case with Matilda of Boulogne, who was the regnant Countess of Boulogne, which was a great help to her cause and that of King Stephen during the anarchy. Finally, 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 we will conclude with talking about soft power, which was an accepted facet of female power in this period, depending on how it was used and to what end. The way this is often thought about is in terms of pillow talk, private conversations that a man and wife might have when no one else was around. 
a little word here and there in favour of this policy or that appointment. Where this could be unpopular was if this was seen to be enriching the families and supporters of the Queen. Eleanor of Provence famously brought half of Savoy with her, and thanks to her influence over Henry III, they were seen to be picking up all the best jobs and all the best noble daughters, and leaving nothing for the good people of England. This similarly was the view of the actions of Elizabeth Woodville, whose sorceress-like hold over Edward IV allowed those no-good common jumped-up nobling Woodvilles to do the same. Queens, of course, wanted to reward their supporters, and have people around her that she could trust, especially if they were young, from a foreign land, and didn't speak the language well. However, clever queens made sure not to go too far in this regard, such as Eleanor of Castile, who saw what happened to her namesake predecessor and made sure to not bring too many Spaniards with her. Margaret of Anjou was seen to be an evil influence by some over-the-weak King Henry VI, bullying him into making poor decisions and leading the kingdom to ruin. Now, of course, a lot of this influence was, by its own nature, hard to draw out from half a century in the future, because these conversations were private, so we can only guess at the actual soft power influence that queens had over their husbands. But where it was very public was in the act of supplication. This was a very common set-piece act that queens made. If a person was in danger of being killed, or a town threatened of being flattened, a queen could throw herself at the feet of their king and beg them to treat such and such a person or city with leniency. This famously happened with Matilda of Scotland, who tearfully begged Henry I not to execute or imprison his brother Robert Curthose when he made an unannounced visit to court. Philippa of Hainaut acted similarly when she begged Edward not to engage in mass execution after his hard-fought capture of Calais in 1347. Margaret of France acted similarly when Edward I threatened revenge on the city of Winchester. The thing is that it is quite hard to work out how much a Queen's personal agency was involved in this. How many of these occasions were truly spontaneous, and how many were just staged so that the King could look both powerful and magnanimous at the same time? A Queen had to have a certain degree of political standing, of respect at court, if the King was to make use of her in this manner, so it isn't nothing if a Queen did this. At the same time, though, this did not mean that a Queen was always massively influencing the King's decision. In many cases, the decision had already been made. Okay, let's sum up. As I think we can see from this parted survey, there is no such thing as a perfect medieval queen. Though, I did sort of call out Philippa of Hainaut in my episode about her as being someone who came damn near close. He had to produce children of both kinds, but not too many sons. He had to be pious and religious, but not be too stuffy. You had to be from a wealthy foreign house, and preferably bring a nice big dowry too. Adding to England's territory with new lands would also be nice. You had to know your place, but also contribute. You had to love, honour, but most importantly, obey your husband in all things, but also lend a hand and helpful voice if asked. Among the husband and wife partnerships that we have covered, we have seen some very close relationships and some very distant ones. Almost all of these marriages were arranged with love being no concern at all, yet affection and close bonds were created. See Edward I building those Eleanor crosses for his wife when she died, Henry VII breaking down at the death of Elizabeth of York and refusing to see anyone. We have really the full range of queens, from the powerless to the power-hungry, from the meek and demure to the zealous and ruthless. Lots of kids, no kids. Lots of kids, no kids. Foreign and native, young and old, big and small. Eleanors, Matildas, Elizabeths and Isabellas. 
It's been a pleasure telling their stories to you, and I hope you will join me next time for the first of the Renaissance and Reformation era queens, starting, of course, with Catherine of Aragon. So now it's time to bid a fond farewell to the Middle Ages, my personal favourite period of history, and season one of the Queens of England podcast. I hope you will join me in two weeks for season two. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.